let's bow our heads. Father, once again, we do pray that you continue to give us wisdom and guidance as we talk about how we can be more effective to do the work you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're beginning in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is one of my favorite passages as it relates to evangelism. It says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, why did Jesus ask his disciples that question? Didn't he know what the people were thinking about him? Do you think he knew what people thought about him? Yes, he did. He wanted his disciples to think about it. Jesus would often ask questions to get people to think. And so they said to him, some say that you are John the Baptist. Now, why did people say that Jesus was John the Baptist? What had happened to John the Baptist by now? Yeah, he was, what happened? He was beheaded, right? Remember by Herod? And so people looked at Jesus and the work that Jesus was doing, and they said, man, this is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Others said, no, 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 he's not John the Baptist. They said he is Elias or Elijah. Why did people say that Jesus was Elijah? They what? The way he was preaching? All right, what about the prophecy in the book of Malachi that says something about Elijah? What does that prophecy say? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, right? Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, so on and so on. People looked at Jesus and said, wow, this is Elijah come down from heaven, preparing the way for the Messiah. Others, ah, no, 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 it's not Elijah, he's Jeremiah. Now, I don't know why Jeremiah. I mean, why not Isaiah? But anyway, they said Jeremiah. Others said, no, he's not Jeremiah, he's one of the prophets. Then Jesus said to them, he said unto them, but whom say he that I am? In other words, Jesus said, I know what the people are saying about me, but who do you think I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, was that a good answer? That was a perfect answer. It was the right answer. Did Peter always have the right answer? <laughs> there are many times Peter would just say whatever came into his mind. On the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus appeared, or Jesus on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. Remember that? And it says, Peter, James, and John, who were there, they were overwhelmed by this. Peter was afraid, and he didn't quite know what to say. So he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here, for now we can build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and God said, this is my beloved son, hear him. In other words, God said, Peter, this is not the time to talk. It's time to be quiet. Often Peter would first speak, and then he would think. In this case, though, Peter answers and says, you're the Christ the Son of the living God, and he answers correctly. And then Jesus goes on to make this incredible prediction. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thy, thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to thee, but my Father which is in heaven. For a person to come to correct understanding of who Jesus is, it's more than the acceptance of a set of intellectual facts. It's more than believing that, yes, Jesus is the Christ and he's the fulfillment of prophecy. To really know who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit has to move upon the heart. Does that make sense? You can know about Jesus here, but that won't do anything for you. It's not until you know about Jesus in your heart, until he changes your life, that it'll mean anything for you. Then Jesus goes on and he says, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter... And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, uh, we all understand that Peter is not the rock upon which the church is built. Do you understand that, right? The word Peter here in this verse means a pebble or a stone. 
Jesus is saying, Peter, the declaration you just made that I am the Christ, that's the rock that I'm going to build the church on. In other words, the church is built upon Jesus, not built upon Peter. Peter never acknowledged to be the foundation of the church. Actually, Peter said, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the rock of offense. Jesus is the stone. Peter never said, I am the rock upon which the church is built. But then Jesus does go on to make this prediction. He says, I'll build upon, upon, sorry, and he said unto thee that thou art Peter, a stone, but upon this rock, that's the declaration that he just made, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who's the it in the verse? Who's the it? The church. So because Jesus is the foundation of the church, Jesus says the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Now what's interesting is it's not the devil breaking down the gates of the church, but it's the church breaking down the gates of hell. Do you see that? In other words, it's not the church coming and busting through into the church, but it's the church empowered by Jesus that enters into the stronghold of Satan and sets sin's captives free. In other words, it's not the church trembling at the presence of the devil, but it's the devil trembling at the presence of the church because Jesus is the Christ, and Christ has already overcome the world. And so as a church, we might only have 15, 16 people in our church, small church, let's say, and we might feel as though, you know what, we're losing this war, the devil is winning. No, no, no. We can gather together and say, you know what, Jesus is the Christ. He's the foundation of this church. And because Jesus is the Christ, we can go up against the enemy and be victorious. We can enter into Satan's stronghold and set sin's captives free because Jesus is the Christ. Do you understand that? you understand the power behind this? Jesus said, all things are given unto me. All power has been given unto me. Jesus says, I can do all things. Now trust in me, move forward, and we'll tear down the gates of hell, and we'll set sin's captives free. That's the power of evangelism, trusting in Jesus. All things are possible. Now, there's an interesting statement Testimonies, Volume 5. It says, The church is to conduct an aggressive warfare to make conquests for Christ, to rescue souls from the power of the enemy. She goes on, God and holy angels are engaged in this warfare. Let us please him who has called us to be what? Soldiers. You know, in the Bible, there's a lot of reference to the Christian being a soldier. Why do you think there is a connection between being a soldier and being a Christian. What do you think are some of the similarities? A soldier never sleeps. Well, he's always on guard. Sure. He's vigilant. What else? We're in a battle. Okay. What else? You were going to say that? What, what, about, what about what a soldier wears? What is he, what is he wearing? He's got to have armor. As a Christian, do we have armor to put on? What's the helmet symbolize for the Christian? The helmet of salvation. Sword of the Spirit, shield of, of faith, belt of truth, shoes with the preparation of the gospel to share the gospel, right? So we have a uniform that we need to wear like a soldier. Uh, what about a soldier with reference to his commander? Does he have to be in tune with his leader? Does he have to listen to the voice of his leader? Yes. As a, as a soldier for Christ, as a Christian, do we need to be connected to our leader? Absolutely. Now, there's one other aspect of this that I just want to emphasize, and we'll do it briefly, but... 
In Second Chronicles, you have a list of David's mighty men. These were men that came to Hebron to make David king. This is after the death of Saul. And um, Second Chronicles describes for us these mighty men and says, you know, they were expert with throwing stones. They could throw with both the left and the right hand. They were good with sword and shield and bow and arrow and so on. It describes all their characteristics. It says so many from this tribe, so many from this tribe, so many from the next tribe. They all came to make David king. But one of the characteristics that's mentioned several times with reference to David's mighty men is that these were men who were able to keep rank. That's the characteristic that's given. They were able to keep rank. Now you can understand being skilled with weapons and so on, but why is keeping rank so important? Well, back in Bible times, when two armies went to battle, it was different than today. Today you can be on a ship out in the ocean and launch a missile and take out the enemy and not even see the, not even see the enemy, but not so back in Bible times. In Bible times, two armies would often face each other on either side of a valley. And then at the sound of the war horn, the armies would advance towards each other. And as they came up towards each other, you would be able to see the enemy. You could see the number of giants in the rank. You could see how many chariots they might have had or their vast numbers. And very often, as these two armies would come towards each other in battle, the first army to turn and break rank and run, that was almost always the army that lost the battle. So the description of David's mighty men is that these men were able to keep rank. It didn't matter whether they were vastly outnumbered by the enemy, or if the enemy had all kinds of giants or superior weaponry, these men were able to keep rank. They advanced together in unison. They would never turn and run. Do you think that's an important characteristic for us as Christians, especially in the church? Do you think we need to keep rank? You see, the devil's number one tactic is to divide. That's what the devil tried to do with the disciples. Remember in the upper room where Jesus had all of these things he wanted to tell the disciples, but he couldn't tell it to them? Why? because they had, just been about, they had just been arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that? Who was going to be in the greatest in the kingdom? And so Jesus couldn't share this because they weren't ready to receive it. So the devil's tactic is always to try and get us to divide, to divide the rank. But David's mighty men, they stuck together. And at the end of time, God's people are going to have to stick together. Amen? Does that make sense? The devil's going to try and divide us. He's going to try and get us to squabble amongst ourselves. And you know what? If you're in a church and there's a group of people who feel like, you know what? Let's do something for Jesus. Let's do evangelism. Let's try and do something. And, and you guys get together and, and you start implementing the cycle of evangelism. You start doing evangelism. You know what the devil's going to try to do? He's going to try and divide you. He's going to try and get you to squabble, right? He's going to try and get you mad. He's going to do anything he can to try and divide us to divide God's people, but we must keep rank. We must press together, press together, and we can accomplish the mission God has called us to do. Now, based upon a church's understanding of this principle that we're soldiers in God's army and we have a mission to fulfill, it results in three types of church mentalities. Three types of church mentalities. The first is what we call the castle mentality. The castle mentality church is very inward focused. We're more concerned about ourselves than we are about the accomplishment of the mission. 
In the Castle Mentality Church, preservation of the status quo becomes paramount. We're just going to keep doing things the way we've always done things. In the Castle Mentality, this leads to institutionalism. Now, what do we mean by institutionalism? Institutionalism happens when a church forgets why it was originally established and begins to think that its prime purpose is to prosper itself. You get that? When we forget why we were originally established and we begin to think that our main purpose is to prosper ourselves, then we fall into the trap of institutionalism. You see, the Seventh-day Adventist church was not raised up for us. It was raised up to accomplish a mission. Seventh-day Adventist schools were not raised up to be these great institutions of learning. They were raised up to train people for missions. That was the original purpose. Are you with me? Our health institutions were not originally raised up to be the best hospitals in the country. They were raised up to share the gospel with people by ministering to their physical needs. But when you forget your original mission, you begin to think that your main purpose is to preserve yourself that's when you fall into the trap of institutionalism. That's the castle mentality church. In the castle mentality church, tradition overrides principle. Traditions are good so long as they are based upon solid biblical principles, but when the tradition becomes more important than the principle upon which it is based, then things get out of balance. Now, back in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, they placed their traditions above the principles of God's law. So on one occasion when Jesus and his disciples were walking through the field and the disciples picked some of the wheat and they rubbed it in their hands and they blew away the chaff on the Sabbath, they accused the disciples of breaking the Sabbath. They didn't break the Sabbath. They were still faithful to the principle. Now they might have violated the tradition, right? The Pharisees' tradition. But the Pharisees had placed their tradition even above the Bible. Now, I'm going to give you a classic example of this. <clears throat> when I grew up, in the Avenus community, it was a no-no to go to movie theaters. Some of you grow up the same way. Uh, by the way, I agree with that. I don't think we should be going to movie theaters. But when we grew up, we were taught you don't go to movie theaters. And the question was why? And the answer came back, well, because when you go to movie theaters, there's a lot of smoking going on. And um, you know you watch the titles of the movies beforehand. And if Jesus comes, and you're at the movie theater, you lost. <laughs> These are some of the things that people would tell us. And, and so we didn't go to movie theaters. But what began to puzzle me is that the very same movie that people are watching in the theater, we now bring home and put on our big screen TV. And so the young people are saying, well, what's the point? Why do you say we can't go to movie theaters when you're watching the very same thing that's happening in movie theaters? People say, well, it's because of the environment. Well, the environment can be pretty nice at the movie theater. Chairs are comfortable, no smoking allowed. You can get popcorn. You understand what I'm saying? So the tradition becomes more important than the principle, but when we're entertaining ourselves with the same stuff that the world is entertaining itself with, and we bring it into our own home, you see what I'm saying? We're putting the tradition above the principle. When in reality, we need to ask the question, what type of entertainment does God want us to have? Let that be the guiding light. Okay, that makes sense? 
That's the castle mentality church. All right, in the castle mentality church, this kills evangelism. For nothing challenges the status quo like evangelism. We were doing an evangelistic meeting one time in a church, and uh, the evangelist overheard one old lady say to another old lady in the church, I can't wait for these meetings to be over so all these people just can just go away and we can have our church back. <laughs> that is a castle mentality church, right? They forgot their mission. They didn't realize why they're even there, right? Nothing challenges the status quo like evangelism. A classic example of this was the Jews in the time of Jesus. They thought Israel was raised up for them. They didn't realize that God raised up Israel for the world. So that's one extreme, the castle mentality. Then there's another extreme, and I call that the resort mentality. So in the resort, you think of a nice big hotel, palm trees, soft music playing, everything to please and entertain. In the resort mentality, the focus is on drawing large crowds of people. That's the goal. The more people we can have in our church, the more successful we are. Now, it's true, we want to have lots of people come hear the Word of God, but that's not our prime purpose. Our prime purpose is to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. That's our prime purpose. But in the resort mentality, we focus on drawing large crowds of people. As a result, there is a de-emphasis of the distinctive Adventist truths because they're not popular. So we don't talk about commitment. We don't talk about obedience. We don't talk about surrender. We don't call sin by its right name. The very message God is asking us to preach to the world, we don't preach because it's not popular. We might offend somebody and then they won't come back. Does that make sense? In the resort mentality church, this leads to entertainment instead of worship. Now, true worship is the outflowing of what God is doing within your heart and life. I don't believe those who have never really sincerely come to God in repentance can ever really worship Him. Only the converted can really worship. The unconverted cannot worship. They can come and they can sing, but they can't worship. And worship is not something that we simply do Sabbath morning when we come to church. Worship begins on our knees beside our bed, pouring out our heart to God. That's where worship begins. And then when we get together at church, it's just the outflowing of what God is doing within us. Does that make sense? That's why you can have two people in the same church singing the exact same hymn, and one person is bored to death, and the other person has tears coming down their cheeks. What makes the difference? Do you understand what I'm saying? The heart. Heart. So in the resort mentality, we have a kind of worship, but it's more religious entertainment. It's something that'll make the unconverted feel comfortable, right? It's not genuine worship, because it doesn't come out of genuine repentance, genuine conversion. In the resort mentality, there is a compromising of truth for the sake of popularity, just preaching those things that people want to hear, tolerating sin for the sake of unity. Unity in the church is very important, but we need to be united in Jesus and united in His truth, not just united for the sake of hanging out together. The resort mentality functions under the banner to please at any cost. Whatever's going to make the people happy, that's what we're going to give them. So they want a puppet show, we'll give them a puppet show. Uh, they want uh, drama, we, we'll give them drama. They want country-styled music, and they, well, we'll give that to them too. Wh whatever's going to make the people happy, you see what I'm saying? 
That's the resort mentality. I don't think God wants us to be a castle mentality. I don't think God wants us to be a resort mentality. There's something better. I call that the seek and save mentality. Now, if you look at the picture here, you've got a helicopter, and let's just imagine some poor person is drowning at sea, and the Coast Guard flies over, and somebody calls down and says, hey, good news, this is the Coast Guard. And we just wanted to let you know that we have this wonderful rescue station there on the coast. It's warm. Uh, there's blankets for you. There's a big welcome sign hanging over the door. And if you can just get to that rescue station, we'll take really good care of you. Good luck, and off goes the helicopter. Now, that's not going to help, right? But too often we hang our welcome banners out in front of the church and say, well, if you just come to us, we'll take good care of you. But really, Jesus didn't just call down from heaven and say, if you do this and this, you'll be saved. Jesus came to us. He came to minister to us. And that's the example that we need to follow. In the seek and save mentality, the church exists to save the lost and reveal God's character. You can't reveal God's character without saving the lost, and you can't save the lost without revealing God's character. They go together. In the seek and save mentality church, evangelism becomes the focus of the church. That's why we are here. We are here to accomplish a mission, to do a work. In the seek and save mentality, we must have a clear understanding of our message and our mission. We need to know who we are and what it is God has called us to share with the world. Every member becomes involved in soul winning. Now, remember we used the analogy earlier that a Christian is likened unto a soldier, right? The soldier has a mission. The Christian has a mission. Now, in the army, there is something for every soldier to do. Isn't that right? If you're a soldier and you don't have anything to do, how long are you going to stay in the army? Not very long at all. Now, it's true. Not every soldier is engaging the enemy on the front line. There are soldiers further back that are providing supplies. There are even soldiers coordinating the, the battle from a distance. But everybody has something to do. And so when it comes to evangelism, not everybody can preach an evangelistic series, but there is something for everybody Everybody can do something. Something for everyone to do. So as you go back to your churches and start planning your evangelistic outreach, you start asking the question, how can we involve as many people as possible? There is something for everybody to do. That's the seek and save mentality church. Okay, next point. Seek and save mentality church. The focus is on conversions and not simply baptisms. That's important. Now a person might be baptized once or maybe twice in their life. But conversion really is something that happens every day. The Apostle Paul says, I die daily. It's a day-by-day -day experience, the surrendering of self. How do we know if genuine conversion is taking place in our lives and in the lives of the people that we're working with? Three ways. Three ways. Number one, if genuine conversion is taking place in our life and the people that we're working with, there will be the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Now, I understand that sanctification is the work of a lifetime, but there should be growth, right? We should become more patient, more loving, more kind. These are things that should be happening in our life if the Spirit of God is working within us. If conversion is taking place, we should also have a growing desire to share Jesus with somebody else. If we've experienced the grace of Christ... We'd want to tell others about what we found. And thirdly, if conversion is taking place, we should be gaining victory over sin. Not that we've obtained the goal, but we should be pressing towards the mark. 
We might not be where we want to be, but by God's grace, we shouldn't be where we started. Does that make sense? We should be able to see growth spiritually. And we shouldn't be satisfied unless that's our experience. Unless we're experiencing growth, unless we manifest in the fruit of the Spirit, we need to keep praying and keep asking God to keep working within us. In the seek and save mentality church, victory in Jesus and His righteousness is emphasized. Seek and save mentality church, the training and the equipping of lay members for service. We all need to be trained in doing the work we have to do. The seek and save mentality church can function under the banner to save at any cost. Whatever time, whatever resources, whatever effort is required for me to reach out to somebody else, that's what I'm willing to invest. We think of what Jesus sacrificed to save us. What are we willing to sacrifice for somebody else? Seek and save mentality. I want to close off here and just share a quick, brief story with you. You know, there is no greater joy that we can ever have in life than the joy of bringing other people to Jesus. Let me tell you why I'm a pastor. It goes back many, many years. When I was about eight years of age, it was a Sabbath afternoon, and we were sitting at home. My parents were taking Sabbath afternoon lay activities, taking a nap. And uh, they told us, be real quiet, you know, Sabbath afternoon, can't run around, can't ride your bicycle, can't go wild, shh, you gotta be quiet. So I was home, and my cousins were there visiting. And they were about my same age, about eight, nine years of age. So we're sitting around and we're saying, well, what can we do today at Sabbath? And somebody says, hey, let's be missionaries. And we say, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, we can be missionaries. Now, if you grow up in Africa like me and you're going to be a missionary, you're going to go to India. If you grow up in North America and you're going to be a missionary, you go to Africa. But we were in Africa, so we wanted to go to India. We want to go tell everybody in India about Jesus. Oh, we can't go to India. We're just kids. What can we do? Somebody says, hey, we can go to the neighbors. Let's just go tell the neighbors about you. Oh, that's a good idea. What are we going to tell them? We thought about it for a minute. Somebody said, we can sing them a song. Well, what song should we sing? We thought about, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Yeah, yeah, we can sing that song. And then we can quote some scripture. Oh, okay, what should we quote? Well, that was easy. John 3.16. And we'll quote them John 3.16. So there we were, dressed in our Sabbath suits. We had our Bibles under our arms. My mother later said she heard the back door close. She peeked out of the curtains. She saw the three musketeers marching down the driveway. She said, oh, Lord, be with those boys. There they go. And off we went. We knocked on the neighbor's door. The neighbor opened up the door. Before we gave them much time to say anything, we would say, hello, we're here to tell you about Jesus. And then we just started to sing our song. We'd sing our little song, and then we'd open up the Bible. didn't matter where we opened. It could be Isaiah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We'd quote John 3.16 and say, thank you so much for listening. We go to the next house. Well, this was fun. We just go to a house. Well, there was one house that had cars parked all up and down the street. Cars parked in the driveway on the grass. Something was happening in the house. So we walked up and we knocked on the door and the lady opened up the door and she said, hello, can I help you? And we said, yeah, we're here to tell you about Jesus. And before we could start singing our song, she did something that nobody else had done before. She said, oh, well, come inside. Nobody else had invited us in. Kind of looked at each other, okay, and we followed in. And she led us down the hallway, and she turned into the living room. And the living room was packed with people. The television was on, and uh, there was a big rugby game going on on TV. And, of course, rugby in South Africa is like, is like uh, hockey in Canada. <laughs> it's a big deal, man, a big national sport. And some big games going on. So all the people are there watching the TV. 
And the lady says, these boys are here to tell us about Jesus. And of course, nobody even, I mean, they're just watching the TV. Well, my cousin Ashley, he's the brave one, he walked over and he turned the TV off. <laughs> well, that got everybody's attention. And when we saw the look on their faces, we figured we better make this quick. And so there we were lined up in front of the TV and we sang our little song. <laughs> we opened up the Bible and said, for God so loved the world, we quoted our verse. And then my brother said, well, I mean, my cousin said, thank you for listening. And he turned the TV back on and we, we better get out of here. So we made our way down the hallway, opened the front door and we started down the stairs. And then we remember, I remember, there was a voice behind us. It was the lady that had let us in. She said, wait a minute, boys, come back here, come back here. So we marched up the stairs, and there we stood looking up, and there were tears in her eyes. She said, boys, thank you so much for coming to my house to tell me about Jesus. Right there and then I said to myself, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to tell people about Jesus because there is no greater joy that we can ever have than the joy of telling others about Jesus. Can you imagine what it would be like in heaven if somebody were to come up to you and say, you know, the reason I'm here is because you took the time to visit with me. You were willing to share a Bible study with me. You were willing to invite me to that evangelistic meeting at your church. That's why I am here. And you know, if there's just one soul, just one soul, that we can get into the kingdom. It's going to make all the work, all the time, all the effort, all the resources worthwhile if but one soul can be saved throughout all eternity. And God is inviting us to share in His joy of seeking and saving the lost. And that's what evangelism is all about. It's bringing people to Jesus. And my prayer is that God will bless each of you, wherever your church is, whatever you guys are doing or decide to do. Make your number one goal bringing people to Jesus and see what God can do. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you've asked each of us to be involved in the great work of seeking and saving the lost. Father, we recognize it's not in our strength not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit. And we need your Spirit, Lord, in order for us to do the work you're calling us to do. And so we ask a special blessing upon each person here today. We also ask a blessing on the churches that are represented. I pray, Father, that you would move upon all of our hearts. Help us to be willing to earnestly and fervently do what we can to build up your kingdom. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us a vision of great things so that we can do our part that Jesus can come and take us home. For we ask this in His name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.